Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. And their faces were like human faces, and their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as always, as we go through the book of Revelation, let me begin by saying that Jesus Christ is coming back and that we as the body of Christ should be ready to meet him. And I believe he's coming soon. And Jesus didn't give us the day or the hour But he did give us the times and the seasons. So never in the history of mankind are we living in the days that we're living in right now. I mean, 100 years ago, we rode horses. Now we're planning to send a rocket to Mars. Technology has certainly advanced, but also the moral decay of of human society is also advancing. And the scriptures are opened up to us more and more, uh, leading us to believe that the time is near for our Lord's return. Now, I need to preface this sermon by saying that what I'm about to describe in this passage is really weird. Apparently, the place that we have up here is some sort of a murder mystery. I guess it's pretty fitting for what we're about to talk about today. But... uh, It's weird. It's strange. It is. But there's lots of strange things in the Bible that we take by faith and that we take based on the evidence. I mean, think about it. The resurrection of a man is a preposterous idea when you think about it. I mean, come on, a man rising from the dead? But the only thing that it has going for it is that it's true is that it's true. And so that's that's the approach I ask you to take as we go through this, this passage. When we approach things like this in the scriptures, 
Keep an open mind and don't be afraid. Don't trade what you do understand for what you don't. God is in control. He loves us and he will see us through to the end. And I promise you that you will be encouraged at the end of this sermon. Now, if you like horror movies, this sermon is for you. In the opening scene of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, I'm going to give a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, is incarcerated inside of a Russian prison. Hunt is casually kind of bouncing a rock off the wall of his cell for amusement. And Hunt was strategically inside the prison for a specific mission to extract a prisoner by the name of Bogdan, who has ties with underground arms dealers and information, and he's considered an asset to the IMF, or the Impossible Mission Force, as it's called. Uh, The technician-turned-field agent, Benji Dunn, played by Simon Pegg, has secretly hacked into the prison's systems to infiltrate and help Hunt escape with Bogdan. Benji manipulates the security cameras, and he opens the doors to all the cell blocks, which causes mass chaos in the prison. Prisoners are brawling with the guards and each other, and people are just smashing each other to bits. It's pure pandemonium. And this is precisely what Hunt needs to get Bogdan and get to the extraction point to finish his mission. And after fighting his way through and taking a few licks himself, Ethan Hunt eventually makes it to the extraction point where Agent Carter bores a hole through the concrete with special machinery and they make their escape. Now, as I watch this scene unfold, and I love all the Mission Impossible movies, as I watched this scene unfold, I couldn't help but think of the scene here in Revelation 9. But instead of concrete walls and prison doors, we have before us a prison of a different kind. This is the prison for the most sinister beings who've committed the most heinous crimes in the history of creation. And just like Benji presses a button and opens up all the cell block doors to allow the worst of the worst to escape, so a fallen one is given a key to this mysterious shaft called the Abuso to release a horde on mankind as a measure of judgment against those who have rebelled against Jesus Christ. Imagine, if you would, every murderer, rapist, thief, extortioner, drug dealer, gang member was suddenly released on our streets here in America our society would be thrown into chaos, law and order would be impossible, fear and trembling would rule the day. Are you encouraged yet? (laughs) It's going to get better, I promise. Now, I believe that at this point, with the church in heaven, with Jesus, during this time, Jesus is pouring his wrath out on a world that totally rebels and rejects him and his offer of salvation. This is the world's just due, and they are paying for their sins. After all, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's either Christ's blood or it's your blood. But Jesus loves us and doesn't want us to be involved in that. So we saw from chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. The second phase of what I call the heptatic structure of the book of Revelation, it's in a frames of seven, if you will. Frames of seven. First, 
We saw Jesus releasing the seven seals. Then we see the seven trumpet judgments released. The first angel blows his trumpet and hail mixed with fire burned up a third of the earth, devastating the planet ecologically. Grass, trees, that sort of thing. The second trumpet blast brought what John describes as a great mountain plunging into the sea. God's judgment on the ocean kills a third of the sea creatures. Can you imagine the stench that that would create? Especially with the ocean trade winds carrying that all over the world. I mean, recently we've had the Canadian wildfires affect us. We could smell the smoke all the way up from Canada. A third of the ships were also destroyed from what could be could be described as a, a meteor. We don't we don't know. It's just speculation. But can you imagine the supply chain problems that this would cause the world? The cost of goods would skyrocket. The third trumpet's released, and a star, which could be a fallen angel or some kind of effect from the dust of a meteor, we don't know. It's speculation. We don't know what it is, reminiscent of the bitter waters of, of Mara there in Exodus 17. A third of the fresh water sources become poisonous. Streams, aqueducts, reservoirs. Mankind will not be able to find a pure drink of water. Many will risk drinking it, but many will die as a result, the scripture says. The fourth angel blows the trumpet and a celestial altering happens. The sun, the moon, the stars are directly affected to not give off light. And without light, you cannot see. It's a lot harder to grow food. It's harder to navigate your way around. When we as the church, which I believe is removed prior to this horrific time, Jesus unleashes his wrath wrath, and salt and light will be gone. If you don't have salt and light on the earth, all you have is bland and darkness. And I promise you, again, this sermon will get better. It will get better. Four trumpets up to this point have been released, and this is not the worst of it. For we see in verse 13, there's an eagle flying around, flying around saying, there's three more trumpet blasts, and he calls them the three woes. Now, is God being mean in releasing all of this? Is God vindictive? Is he bloodthirsty? Why is he doing this? And what's his purpose? I thought God was a God of love and forgiveness. Well, he is. Well, then why would he subject the world to such horror? What are these locusts being released? Well, let's get into the passage to find out. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened, <clears throat> excuse me, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened, and the smoke from the shaft. Excuse me. So John sees a star that has fallen. The language here indicates something that will happen or is happening, but something that hasn't, that has happened, meaning past tense. What do I mean? Stars, stars in the scripture 
have references to supernatural beings, angels, if you will. This angel, this star that has fallen, past tense, is some sort of a fallen angel. It is in a fallen state. And the he, personal pronoun, indicates that this isn't a star, but a fallen angel, if you will. And notice this fallen angel was given the key to the bottomless pit. This demon has to be given a key. We don't know what this key is. We don't know what it looks like. Maybe it's some sort of an access code or whatever. We don't know. But it is not something that it can do at will. And this is really God's sovereignty over his measured judgment. You with me so far? And he's allowing this to happen for a reason. He's allowing this particular fallen angel to have access to the abuso, the bottomless pit. Now, what is the abyss? What is this? What is the bottomless pit? Well, we see it in several places in scripture, but in essence, it's really the place of the dead. Most scholars believe it's in the center of the earth and it's called bottomless because it is believed to be suspended in some way. And this is the place where people who have rejected the son of God for salvation and have chosen not to put their faith and trust in his finished work on the cross. This is where they go to await their final judgment called the great white throne judgment there in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. It is also the place where the angels that rebelled against mankind in Genesis 6 are incarcerated, also awaiting their judgment for the day of the Lord. Now, to get a background of the abyss, we have to quickly examine the antediluvian age, that is pre-flood, in Genesis 6, the time before the flood. And we see that the sons of God, which in Hebrew is the B'nai Ha Elohim, these are supernatural beings, which is, a t- which is a term to describe supernatural beings, offspring of Yahweh, of God, somehow, someway came down from their supernatural domain and took wives for themselves. They copulated with them and produced a race of beings called the Nephilim, which in the Greek is the word gigos or gigantes, which means giants. And this is where we get our word for giants. These offspring were huge in mass and are called mighty men and men of renown. They somehow survived the flood because we can see these same giants show up in the conquest of Joshua. You may have heard of Og, the king of Bashan. He is described in the Old Testament as a giant king. Now, why would these supernatural beings do this? Why would they take wives for themselves? Somehow, we don't know exactly what the process was or what happened, but somehow mess with the the human genome to make this happen. Why would they do this? Well, to get a perspective, we must look at the apocryphal book of of first Enoch. Now, let me say Enoch is not inspired scripture. This is not inspired, but it is good for information And it supports the narrative that we see here in scripture. And it's so important to the ancient Jewish mind that the book of first Enoch was actually found with the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. 
along with other interesting writings. And this book was important enough for Jesus' brother, Jude, to quote from directly, and for Peter to quote from indirectly in 2 Peter chapter 2. First Enoch tells us that 200 angels saw women, they lusted after them, just like Genesis 6 says, and they made a pact to take wives for themselves, and they did this in an area of Israel called Caesarea Philippi on top of Mount Hermon there in northern Israel. What did they lust after? Well, they were envious that God gave mankind the ability to marry, to produce offspring, and we were given dominion over planet Earth as a birthright of God's imagers. This was something that they didn't possess themselves and something and because their dominion was in a different realm than ours. Told you the sermon was going to be weird. Stay with me. First Enoch 10 tells us that Yahweh pronounces a judgment on the angels that sinned against his imagers. First, God makes the fallen Elohim watch as their giant offspring are manipulated to turn against each other and wipe each other out. And then they are sentenced to the furthermost reaches of darkness, the lowest parts of the abyss, to be chained and await their judgment on the day of the Lord. Peter describes this to us when he says, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10, through 10, I'll read it to you. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and the word hell there is Tartarus in the Greek, only place it happens in Scripture, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of the defiling passion and despise authority. Jude also lets us in on this mischief that was going on in Genesis 6 when he says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. And the Greek word there is oketerion. And Paul uses that word in, in I believe it's 2 Corinthians 5, when he talks about our bodies as tents. When we put, put off these tents and God upgrades us to 2.0. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and to strange flesh. These angels took on strange flesh. Luke 8.31 tells us that demons inside the possessed man begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. They were terrified of it. And instead, Jesus commands them to occupy a herd of pigs. And you know the story after that. Wonder what a bunch of pigs were doing in Israel. But anyway, that's for another study. Verse 3. 
So that's a little bit of a background. Then verse three here in Revelation nine, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So the shaft is opened by some kind of key from this fallen angel. And John sees these strange creatures that he describes as locusts. And again, they were given power by God. They just didn't have it, but it was given to them. They had power like scorpions, not literal scorpions, but like scorpions. This is the imagery here that John is painting the picture for us. So are these literal locusts or is this figurative speech? Well, we see in verse 11 that these locusts have a king over them. But Proverbs 30 verse 27 says that the locusts have no king. So what are they? What's interesting is we find a clue in Amos chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, Thus the Lord God showed me, and by the way, I'm reading from the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It says, Thus says the Lord God showed me, and behold, the offspring of locusts is coming early, and behold, one locust is Gog the king. That's interesting. These are demons being re- released from the abyss to wreak havoc on planet Earth. They are an instrument of God's judgment. The worst demons that are chained down in the abuso will be released to torment all of mankind. And again, I don't believe the church of Jesus Christ is here. I have many reasons for that, which I can't go into. But I don't believe that we as the church will see this. Brothers and sisters, listen. 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. Our adversary is toothless when it comes to those of us in Christ because of the power of Christ that resides in us. 1 Corinthians 6 says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God chose to tabernacle in us, in our hearts. The only power that the demonic realm have is the power that God gives them to sanctify us. But it is very controlled. And and anything that we give them over as power, we start messing with Ouija boards and Occultic stuff, you are inviting the demonic spirits in to have some sort of authority. Do not freak out. You let let me make this really clear. I'm a charismatic guy, and so I talk a lot about this stuff. You cannot be simultaneously possessed by an evil spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the same time. Are you with me? You cannot be possessed by an evil spirit and simultaneously be indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the same time. It is impossible. If you are in Christ and have placed your trust in him, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1 tells us. There is no room for takeover by the enemy. Now, The demonic realm can influence you. They can lie to you in your inner ear, your spiritual ear. They can slow you down. 
which is their mode of operandi. You see, his scheme is to get you to focus on how bad your performance is in your Christian life. He wants you to focus on law, but Jesus wants you to focus on grace. On grace. The enemy wants you to judge yourself, but Jesus wants you to focus that he was judged in your place because he loves you. The enemy wants you to see how you don't measure up. And Jesus wants you to see that he measured up for you. The enemy wants you to focus on your work. Jesus wants you to focus on your faith. The enemy wants you to focus on the wages of your sin. But Jesus wants you to focus on the reward he freely gives you for just believing him. The enemy says you need to do. But Jesus says it's done it's done it is finished some of you need to hear that today you need to, you need to hear that it's not about what you do and it's not about your performance it's about his performance for you and that he has set you free look at verse four they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of god on their foreheads. So as these demons rose from the abyss, they were told not to harm any vegetation, which means they were on a leash. They're on a leash. They were commanded. No vegetation attacks. But notice it says, well, excuse me, the first four trumpets threaten the earth as vegetation, but here the judgment goes up a notch and begins to go after rebellious people. They were also instructed not to harm those with the mark of God on their forehead. Who who are these people? Who are these protected ones? Well, these are none other than the 144,000 Jews back in Revelation chapter 7 that were marked. The judgments were held until they were marked for protection. 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams released on earth to preach the gospel. And yet here is another piece of evidence why I strongly believe the church will not be here during the judgment. Why would God tell these demons not to harm the church? Because the church isn't there. It's gone. And because the church is not there to be protected. It's with Jesus. And also, the fact that the very word ecclesia last appears is in Revelation chapter 3, 22. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church or gathered ones or called out ones. We won't see Ecclesia appear again until Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 in the new heavens and the new earth. If the church was here during this demonic onslaught, we have power and authority over them through Jesus Christ. We would begin to rebuke them. And overcome them because of the authority that Christ has given us. In Luke's gospel, chapter 10, we read that Jesus sent 72 apostles on a ministry mission endowed with power by the spirit to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. And here's what happened. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were excited. And Jesus said to them, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
And behold, I give you authority. I give you authority. You hear that? I give you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing, nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, 17 through 20. Did you catch that? Jesus said, I've given you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. Jesus is using the scorpion motif, if you will, to describe demons. John is doing the same thing here in this passage. If the church was there, these scorpions would be overrun with the power of Jesus Christ. Yet another reason why I believe the church is not there. In Muhammad Ali's, uh, or excuse me, John, I lost my place. In, Mah in Muhammad Ali's heyday, as the heavyweight champion in boxing, he had taken his seat on a 747, which was starting to taxi down the runway for takeoff. The flight attendant walked by and he noticed Ali did not have a seatbelt on and said, please fasten your seatbelt, sir. And he looked up and proudly snapped, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And without hesitation, the stewardess stared at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane. Fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> and I think it's worth noting as someone like myself who leans charismatic. I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. That's my theological position. That it's not our place to take on the devil. Yes, we have the power over the enemy, but that doesn't mean we go and look for a fight. The disciples in this verse were a little full of themselves. Man, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Come on, let's go. And Jesus brings them back down to earth when he said, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven with pride. I saw his pride take him over because of his position and authority and he was kicked out of paradise for it. Be careful, boys. Don't rejoice that you have this power, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven, that you're saved, that the gospel is the number one thing we focus on. Be careful of the position that you hold, the gifts that you have, the power that you wield, the money that you have, that it doesn't go to your head, that none of it is possible without the grace of God. Verse five, they were allowed to torment them for five months. Did you catch that? But not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Verse six, and in those days, people will seek death. They won't want to live anymore but they won't find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. How horrifying. For five months, these creatures will torment those that worship them. They'll torment physically and psychologically. They won't sleep. They won't rest. The torment will last 24 hours a day, seven days a week for five straight months. This is worse than death. They'll live in an existence where they're imprisoned by these demons and God is giving them over to these satanic hordes. 
It'll be so bad that the rebels will look for a way to die, but God will even remove that from them supernaturally. He'll remove that power from them to be able to die. It's the only time during the tribulation period where people won't die. So to answer the question from before, why is God allowing this? Why is he doing this? The Lord in his mercy is giving a taste of these rebellion of the of these rebellers of what conscious eternal torment and hell will be like for eternity. There's no rest there. You'll be alone forced to deal with the weight of your sin. Hell is a real place. And it's for those who want to be independent from God. C.S. Lewis once said, hell is the ultimate monument to human freedom. So what is God doing? He's saying, I'm going to give you a taste of what hell is like because I don't want you to go there. You see, even in darkness, God shines a light. He's trying to get them to repent. He's trying to get them to turn to him. He's trying to get them to come so he can heal them. But instead, they raise their fist at him. The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. Now, you might be sitting there saying, Brett, are you trying to scare me? The answer is yes, because I love you. And so does God more than I do. He doesn't want you to experience this. He paid a huge price so that you wouldn't have to experience this. And the only way out of suffering this torment of this horde is by turning to Jesus Christ by faith. By faith. Repenting of your sins and putting your trust in him alone. Even during horrific judgment, God always shines a light of grace. Always. He is long-suffering and he is loving and he loves people. He loves his imagers. Even during this horrific judgment, God says this in Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the Lord God and not rather that he should turn from his way and live Ezekiel thirty three eleven, as I live says the Lord God I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn turn from your evil ways for why should you die O house of Israel 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, the Lord waits to put his best robe on you, the best shoes, to put his signet ring on your finger. He's so gracious and loving. His patience toward me in my life for as many times as I've turned my back on him. 
is astounding. You know how the Lord convicts me of my sin? He blesses me. I don't know which is worse. I'd rather go in the back of the woodshed. It's almost easier to take. When I was 16 years old, I just got my driver's license and my parents, my dad's going to love this when he hears this. He's going to laugh. My parents had a, a Ford Taurus. Now, if you don't, for those of you who are younger, you don't know what that is, but parents had a Ford Taurus and they let me drive it. And I didn't have my own car yet. My parents let me drive it around. And after church one evening, I, did, I decided to stop by AM, PM, Mini Mart. Come on, Poco, give me a shout out. Yeah. Gotta love, you know, I think hot dogs were like 50 cents. And as a 16-year-old kid, I'd get maybe like, I don't know, 10, 15 of them. I mean, I just, yeah. That's right. And a big old, you know, 50-gallon drum of soda. And uh, so I got, got some eats and got in my car. And as I pulled out of the parking lot, um, I was getting ready to make a left. And uh, instead of a green arrow, it was a green solid light. Well, you know what that means. Well, my hot dog dropped and it went on the floorboard. And as the car was moving, I decided to bend over to pick it up. And of course, as a 16-year-old, I'm like turning left while I'm doing this. And as I come up, bam, hit the guy in front of me. Boy, I was like, wow, I'm going to get it when I get home. Here I'm driving home. The four Taurus and it's overheating and I have to stop every five, you know, two or three miles going down 163 until highway 163 until I got home. I pull the car around. I'm, I'm, I'm scared to death. I'm like, my dad's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Um, Lord, I'm coming to heaven early. I, I'll never forget. I, wa- I, I pulled the car around. I parked it on the side of the house because I didn't want my parents to see it. I wanted to tell them first, sort of absorb the shock. Anyway, I walk up the stairs to go to my house. My dad comes out. He looks at the car. He looks at me. He looks at the car. He looks at me. And he did something that I never expected. He said, are you okay? I said, yeah. And he grabbed me and he hugged me tight. And he said, son, you made a mistake, but it's just a car. We'll fix it. I'm glad you're okay. And I just fell into a pile, started to cry. I couldn't believe it. And I actually felt worse. And I never forgot that. And I've tried to treat my kids with the same grace. And I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. It was so powerful to me. And you know, it reminded me of the Lord. You know, the Lord loves you. The mess you've made in your life. he's He's not waiting there. He's not going, okay. Daniel, go out and pick a switch. He's not doing that. He just wants to wrap his arms around you. 
Say, you know, you made a mess, but I'll clean it up. It's, it's peanuts to me. I love you. And man, I'll tell you, that will change the heart more in the face of sin than a good beat down. Now, there are times when we need to be disciplined. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about God's discipline. But man, the Lord just has his way with his grace that will make you want to love him and obey him even more. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and their noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Verse 10, they have tails and stings like scorpions and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. The name Apollyon or Abaddon means destroyer. Even this description, and by the way, there are people out there, oh, these are Apache attack helicopters. I'm like, no, just don't. <laughs> just, just don't. I mean... These, these are, this is a demonic horde ready for, for war. It's really what it is. But even this description of this bizarre and horrific demons would remind John's congregation of God's promise. For you see, in Joel chapter 2, we find a parallel passage to Revelation 9. And we won't go through it. But historically, the prophecy of Joel 2 was fulfilled in Joel's day when Israel was actually besieged by literal locusts. But symbolically, the prophecy was fulfilled in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians marched south and carried the ten northern tribes to captivity. And by the way, that's where the Samaritans come from. When the Assyrians and the Jews intermarried and they produced the, the half-breed called Samaritans. I didn't know if you know that. That one was free. Um, prophetically... Locusts speak of the demons that will be released from the abyss in Revelation 9. But nestled among the dire warnings of this terrible invasion is a wonderful promise that God gives in Joel. I will restore to you all the years that the locusts have eaten. I'll restore it. When we listen to the trumpet and we obey God and we turn and repent... And we seek the Lord for sin with sincerity. The Lord not only forgives us, but he makes up for what we lost. You know, you'd think forgiveness would be enough, but he does more than that. He restores all that is lost because he loves us. All right. So the demonic horde is released on mankind. The, the tribulation ends right here, right? Man repents. Everything's good. We're good. The eternal state is brought in. The millennial reign of Christ. We're good, right? No. I'm going to look down to verse 20. And this will blow your mind. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands 
nor give up worshiping demons. The very ones that tormented them, they were still continuing to worship. And idols of gold, of silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. You have got to have a really hard heart to not turn to Christ after something like that. Wow. One of the things is, as as a reformed church that we believe in, one of the tulips is, is total depravity. And if you don't see that in this, then I don't, I don't know what to tell you. But in closing, be encouraged, family. You won't have to face this, those of you in Christ. Jesus, our Savior, listen. Jesus, our Savior, took the onslaught of the demonic horde. Well, how do you know that, Brett? Well, Psalm, Psalm twenty-two, twelve says, Many bulls have encircled me. The mighty bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. And there is indication that those are demonic beings. First Corinthians tells us that if the supernatural fallen ones had knew what they were doing when they crucified the Lord of glory, they never would have done it. Jesus took the demonic horde for you so that you wouldn't have to take it because he loves you. That's good news. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. Praise him. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, thank you for delivering us from darkness into the kingdom of light. You are holy and you are just, but you also love us. And you want a family. And you are long-suffering. And we give you praise and glory. We thank you for the salvation that you freely have given us. That all you require is believing loyalty, just believing and trusting. Thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.